0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight. And on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. This episode is sponsored by Skip Level, who have asked me to ask you this interesting question. Do you struggle with communicating with dev teams and understanding technical terminology and concepts? On episode 98 of this podcast, I hosted Irene Yu, founder of Skip Level, an on-demand training program that helps professionals and teams become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. You can learn the knowledge and skills you need to better communicate with developers and become more confident in your day-to-day role with the Skip Level program. Go to skiplevel.co and use code OKIP75 to get $75 off the program by the 15th of June 2022. So you better get cracking, and you can check the show notes for more details. On tonight's episode, we talk about the value of product design, how designers can help us to get the product market fit quicker, and why it's important to get them in early before companies get set in their ways. We talk about some of the problems designers and product people have with getting to the top table, some of the ways they might try to get there, and how product people aren't playing the same game as the rest of the leadership team. We also ponder when it's time for founders to move on, why they should consider doing that, and whether some will hang on to the bitter end regardless. For all this and much more, please join us on OneNote in Product. So my guest tonight is Andy Budd. Andy's a design leader, startup advisor, coach and investor who says he believes great design creates competitive advantage. Andy's also a published author who once co-wrote CSS Mastery, but these days is trying to vertically and horizontally align organisations around the impact of design. Andy says he once went diving in an active underwater volcano, so he's clearly well used to pressure and that he can breathe and eat fire. So I'm already looking forward to some hot takes on design and leadership in this interview. Hi Andy, how are you tonight?
1: Oh, I'm doing really well, and Jason, that was, uh, I think that was possibly the best intro I've ever had. I loved all of the things you kind of pulled together. That was brilliant. In fact, I might need to get a copy of that and use that as my
0: official bio from now on. There you go. I can uh, get myself up on Fiverr and record it to music if you so, if you so <laughs> desire. Right. So, first things first, when I spoke to my product design colleagues recently and said I was speaking to Andy Budd, they were amazed. They were excited. They couldn't believe it. So am I right in assuming you get the full mania or should we maybe call it Budmania effect at UX conferences?
1: Oh crikey, no. Um, w- were that the case? I mean, I think I think <laughs> I've definitely I've had my moments throughout my career, and I think maybe sort of kind of like late noughties, sort of two thousand and nine to 2010, 2011, when user experience design was like really at its peak. Clear left the agency I used to run was one of the best UX agencies in the world. with one won best agency of the world a number of times. And I used to speak at a lot of events around the kind of topic of UX. And so I, I guess I was fairly well known. But we've got a whole new generation of designers now, a whole new generation of product people, a whole new generation of product managers. They've got no idea who Claire Left is, and they've got even less idea who Andy Bud is. So <laughs> I think I'm sort of a very, very small niche of maybe slightly aging UX people,
0: <laughs> like have a clue who I am. Most people, no idea. So now, all of those people that I said were excited are now going to think that you think that they're aging, but I'm sure they'll be fine with that. <laughs> but it's okay. We'll bring you to the consciousness of a new, a new cohort of designers on this interview tonight. So let's talk about Clear Left. Then, so you first came to the public consciousness, as you said, through your work with Clear Left and the profile that you brought up there. Now, as a digital design agency, you founded it back in 2005. But as you've pointed out, you've you've now left, or I know that you're not left. You're still part of the non-executive team, you're still there kind of helping out and consulting, but you're not part of the day-to-day operations anymore. And I read the blog post you put up when you announced that you were leaving, and it suggested it was very much a case of, to put words in your mouth, kind of escaping the confines of of business and almost becoming one with the force of UX, like being more (laughs) of a servant to the UX community and moving away from that day-to-day grind of company management. Is that the long and short of it, or have I massively oversimplified that?
1: I think you might have massively oversold it because again, you've made it sound like it was a much more virtuous thing than it probably was. <laughs> I mean, I guess like I, so I, I've been running Clear Left for sort of 15 years as, as CEO. I think most CEOs or, or MDs or however you want to kind of define it, that leading role have a certain lifespan. Yeah, And I think that I had naturally come to the end of my lifespan. I think the first five years in, in any role, but particularly running a company is exciting. You're You're getting the band together. You're solving all these problems and they're the first time you've ever solved these problems it's really exciting i think the next five years it's a sort of a time of sort of consolidation you're you're optimizing you improving your you're making things efficient i think my last five years not just mine but i think a lot of people's last five years in, in, a, in a big role like that things start to become repetitive to some extent yeah you're on your 50th pitch you're on your 20th or, or 200th proposal your 20th conference and so I think I started looking ahead and and it started looking very samey. And so my goal was either like to keep myself interested, we should grow the business. And, um, you know, that was one option, but it was also a slightly selfish option because it was a desire to grow purely to meet the founder's ego. And I just came to the realization that actually maybe the company is where it wants to be naturally wants needs to be. And actually me trying to kind of get things moving and growing bigger was selfish and not really benefiting the the team and, and where they were. So I guess I came to the realization that if I wanted to do new things, rather than having Clearleft be the vehicle to do new things, I could actually let Clearleft go its own path, and I could I could go off and explore other areas and wouldn't be dabbling. I think the other thing is I I've always sort of had this philosophy of well I've had this philosophy of of, of as a leader I think leaders should try and make themselves redundant. Yeah, and in the short term, what that means is freeing up all the things that anyone can do to allow yourself to focus on the things that only you can do. Yeah. So in the early stages of many tech companies, the founders are maybe not in the early stages of the product people, but then they hire amazing product people. and Then they go off and they start raising money and they start doing the sales and the marketing. And then they hire a great salesperson, a great marketing person, and then they're operational and then they hire a great operations person. And each step, you're removing yourself from things that anyone can do or, 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 or specialized people can do to free your, your, yourself up. And so I had this philosophy throughout the whole career of Clear Left. And the inevitable kind of end point of that is one day you wake up and realize, actually, you don't really need to be there. You've got an amazing team of people who are looking after the company really well, probably better than you could alone because you're only specialists. <laughs> And then you find yourself, well, actually, like, what am I, what, what is the value I'm delivering here? And so I just got to that stage. And so I spent the last like, three, four, five years of my time at Clear Left kind of slowly testing my hypothesis that if I leave left, nothing dramatic would happen. So <laughs> I took a, took a, you know, my, my partner went to do a, 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 a yoga course for a, for a couple of months. And I joined her. And, and so that was a couple of months off. And then a couple of months, a couple of years later, I took a six-month sabbatical or maybe a four-month sabbatical over summer. And each time I sort of stepped back, not only did the company not explode, but it probably <laughs> worked better because I wasn't there meddling and poking my nose into things. And also, by stepping away, it forced other people to step up. Yeah, And I think if you find yourself in a situation where you make people or allow people to really, really show you what they can do by stepping out of the picture – it forces them to take ownership. Whereas if you're always hovering around, like on my day-to-day, normally people will be constantly coming up and asking me questions, Andy, what should we do? Should we do this? Should we do that? Should we do something else? And obviously like most CEOs, you want to be helpful. So you answer that question. But by answering all those questions, you you don't let those people make the decisions themselves. Whereas if you're like, you know Andy's on the other side of the country and can't be bothered, people make <laughs> the decisions and often they make them better than you would have done.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, I'm, Incredibly proud of my team because I look at my team and it's like, hey, you know, I helped build this team, but they are making better, smarter decisions than, than I probably ever would. And so I feel really, really vindicated that it was the, the right decision and the right time and, you know, allowing other people to to be part of that journey. I think the other thing, and then we can move off of Clear Left if you want, but the <laughs> other thing is I wanted to kind of leave a legacy at Clear Left. And the best way of leaving a legacy that it goes on beyond you. Yeah. I would love to be in a position that. The company's still going in 5, 10, 20, 30 years and isn't reliant on me to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be great if it became a some, something other than me. And so I took it through the first part of its journey, but I think it's open to other people now to, to, to navigate
0: the next however many years. And bon voyage to them and everyone that sails with them. But <laughs> it's fair to say that not all founders are prepared to take that leap that you took to make themselves redundant, move on, bog off and go and do something else and let everyone else take over the company and take their creation on. And obviously, a lot of that could be down to ego or maybe they just don't trust anyone else because they just think that they're the only people that run this. But what's your advice to such a founder who's maybe, maybe overstayed their welcome just a little bit and maybe hadn't seen that? Like, is there kind of a, I don't know, almost like a test or a a set of benchmarks that founders can use or signals that they can look for to basically point out to themselves that it's really time to move on? Or do you think that this is something that certain founders will just always have a like a, a cloth ear that means that they'll never get to that?
1: I mean, I think it's not just limited founders, but I think everybody has to have a high EQ. I think everybody has to be aware of their own skills and limitations. And has to listen to what's going on in the market and what people are telling you. I think most people, when they join a company, like there's a period of time when they're at their best. You know, you might be an amazing designer or developer to get a company off the ground, but that might not mean you've got the skills necessary to run a five or 10 person team or a 50 or 500 person team and being aware of what you're good at not presupposing that you should be great at all parts of that journey, but understanding what you enjoy and what gives you energy and what you're good at, I think is really important. Typically, you tend to find in more traditional companies where the CEO isn't the founder. CEOs have a kind of like a five-year kind of lifespan. Yeah. And actually, you want to constantly be bringing new blood in to have different ideas, you know, because quite often you get quite settled and quite overly comfortable otherwise. I think founders, in my experience, often – Ten years is is a really good sort of time frame because over ten years you can grow and uh, and scale a business. But after ten years, you know, you particularly if if you're looking at startups, startup founders might be the great person. You know, great to get you to that sort of. Well, who knows? You know, you might be a great person to get product market fit. You might be a great person to get Series A, Series B.
2: Yeah,
1: you might even be a great leader to kind of take you all the way up to IPO. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're the right person you know you might be the right person to manage a hundred person company you might be an absolute disaster for managing a thousand person company (laughs) and being aware of that being conscious of that i think is is really important so whether you're a founding developer a designer or a ceo i think awareness of your limitations and also what gives you joy and energy i think is really important
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think there's a certain interview with the vampire vibe there with the getting the new blood in every few years to keep yourself grounded and young So. Nice to get a bit of horror reference in there as well. But let's talk about now, move away from horror. So on Twitter, you've got a pinned tweet saying something along the lines of, you're essentially doing two things now. You're advising startup founders how to create thriving product businesses through the lens of design, and you're helping design and product leaders become more influential in their business. And you also say you see these as different sides of the same coin. Now, I might say that that coin is somewhat unfairly weighted in some startups, and I hear and see a lot of chat around about how design and, frankly, product management as well don't really get a good seat at the table. So what's it like out there with those companies that you're advising and some of the people you're coming across? Some of these founders that maybe haven't even started thinking about design yet.
1: I think all these things are gradations to some extent. I mean, one of the reasons I started ClearLeft was because I, you know, I, I generally and why I speak at conferences and why I write books and stuff is because I genuinely believe in the power of design. Yeah. I think design can make people's lives better in a small regard. You know, I'm not talking kind of world changing, but we've all experienced really, really frustrating interfaces. We've all experienced things that have been poorly thought through. And good design hopefully thinks through those problems, thinks through the frustrations users have to make their lives marginally better. So I'm not curing any kind of major diseases or illnesses or solving world hunger. But because I'm a designer, I can help make things slightly less frustrating for people. Also, I believe that design has a big role to play in product market fit. Product market fit, the holy grail of most startups, which is trying to create a product that customers love, use, will convert to, and and use every day. And so I think a lot of startups mistakenly think that the way to product market fit is through engineering effort and through the genius of the founder. But I think there's a process. You know, There's a really, really well-tried and tested process that includes research, includes customer development, it includes coming up with a range of different ideas to solve a particular problem rather than just jumping to the first one that looks the most credible it involves often trying out a number of different ways to solve that problem and then deploying the, the one that you have the most confidence in and then obviously seeing how it performs in the market and iterating and i think by engaging designers at an early stage companies can shortcut a lot of missteps cul-de-sacs kind of you know brick walls and that can solve everyone a lot of time and a lot of hassle, and you can get to product market fit faster, you scale faster, and you can start delivering value faster. So I'm a big proponent of that. And so my journey at ClearLeft was trying to teach that mantra to business owners. Back in the day when we founded ClearLeft, we were the first UX agency in the UK. People hadn't heard of UX before. People were just – the state of art of design back in the day was make a pretty picture on Photoshop, make a bunch (laughs) of pages that look roughly similar. And so – we were talking about how to do some of this stuff, which you know has later been divided into custom development and research and yada yada yada. And I would argue that we were very successful. I would argue that going from nothing into the 2005 to maybe reaching peak UX somewhere between 2009 and 2012. Now that process has become so natural and normal that actually the term UX has become meaningless because before it was used <laughs> as a term to differentiate from. The bad way of doing things to the good way of doing things. Now, because everyone does things to a certain level in the same way, it doesn't really make sense to even use that term anymore because we're all largely sort of following that same philosophy. And I've seen designers in the corporate world really thrive. You know, I've seen, if I look back five, six, seven, eight years ago, most of my friends were in small design teams. The design work, the really interesting design work, was being outsourced to agencies. Now I'm seeing design teams grow. I'm seeing a large number of designers and practitioners turned into design leaders. This is why I started leading design, the conference, and also the community. Because suddenly, five, six, seven years ago, we were having all these new teams blowing up. And people leading those teams have never led before. And, and now they're leading teams of five, 10, 50, 100, 200. We're seeing people with titles like VP of Design, Chief Design Officer. While you know, I would definitely say that design is now has in many places earned its seat at the table. I think in many places that seat is still a high chair. I think the the executives don't (laughs) fully appreciate the value that design can bring. I think often they say they do, but there's a classic quote around, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget and I'll tell you what you value. And I think still, (laughs) if you look at teams, design teams are usually under-resourced when it comes to engineering or product or marketing particularly or sales or pretty much any other team. But I think largely that battle, if it's not been won, has at least been with existing teams is going in the right direction. But one of the realizations I had is through my coaching work, I coach a lot of design leaders, again, heads, directors, VPs of design. And what they've been finding is that when they come into companies already established, they've got a bit of an uphill struggle because they're trying to convince a company that's been around for five or 10 years, or sometimes 50 or 100 years to do things slightly differently than they've done before. And the challenge of that is the way they've done before has led to the success of where they are today. And so being a designer in an established company is harder to try and convince people to change direction. And it's possible and it's happening and it's happening slowly. But I came to the realization that if I wanted to have maximum impact, rather than trying to help companies that are already established change slowly, I should try and go back to the source. And the source is effectively two founders in a room with an idea and a laptop. And so I've moved into, as well as coaching design leaders still, I've moved into the world of, of venture capital. Yeah. So now I um, work at a company called Seacamp as a venture partner. And my role on the surface is effectively to source and review startup ideas. So where people come and pitch to us their ideas, and me and members of the investing team will review those ideas and choose which companies wish to invest in. And once we're invested in them, then I will support a number of those portfolio companies, which basically means talking to founders every couple of weeks, helping them solve their problems. Yeah. My secret kind of like stealthy mission though, is <laughs> I'm wanting to help those companies, not from the perspective of a lawyer or a finance person, not from the perspective of an engineer or even a product manager, but from a design perspective. Yeah. So I want to help those founders appreciate design. I want to help those founders find amazing design talent. I want to help those founders bake that talent in at the earliest stages of their company so that they are solving problems in the right way. So that when that company does scale to five designers, 10 designers, 20 designers, when the product team goes to 100, 200 people, the lessons are baked in from the start
0: rather than having to change the process and the culture midstream. So I would assume from what you've just said that you would advocate getting design leadership into a startup as early as possible. Is that fair to say?
1: It's fair to say. I mean, obviously, I'm biased. (laughs) And if I was a product manager, you might say, well, we definitely need to get product management in. And if I was a marketer, you'd say, well, you definitely need to get marketing in. And if I was a finance person, I'd probably say, well, you definitely need an FD. So I'm not saying that my approach is right, but it is my approach based on my own personal lived experience. So absolutely, like I love companies that have a a founder or co-founder who comes from a design background. Yeah, I love companies that don't, but realize the importance of design early and want to find a founding designer. Their first designer that they want to hire, not in the first year of the company, but maybe in the first weeks or months. And those early designers can help navigate those founders through the very, very complicated process of coming up with a product. Yeah. Because the the ironic thing is most company founders have never done that before from soup to nuts from start to finish. But a lot of designers, especially designers and agencies that are used to doing zero to one projects every single day and will iterate through maybe half a dozen zero to one projects in a year. If you hire someone like that, that's three or four years in and has designed 20 or 30 projects from the start, They have a process and a platform and a way of thinking. They have an appreciation for user needs. They have appreciation for customer discovery. They have an appreciation that the first solution might not always be the best solution, but it might be. They have an appreciation, which one of the biggest problems, particularly when I'm I'm talking to founders and product leaders, is prioritization. You know, how do you prioritize a backlog? Yeah. How do you decide what you're going to build next? And designers and product people in general, have answers to many of those questions, or at least have a process with which to judge the answer. And and so you're not sort of, you know, if you have those people in, in the room when you're making those decisions, you have structure. You're not just throwing features at a wall and seeing what sticks, which is often the perception of founders. I don't think it's entirely true. but I actually <laughs> think one of the weird things is I think a lot of founders have done a lot more customer discovery and a lot more research than people give them credit for. Yeah but it's just incredibly informal. That research comes from them you know, eating their own dog food because they're solving a problem that they deeply understand. It comes from them talking to lots of people before they even started solving the problem to understand what the problem is. But a lot of this stuff is hidden because it's done before the product people come on board. It's not Endura. Yeah, no, it's not Endura. And it's also <laughs> done in a very ad hoc way. Yeah. It's not a beautiful, well-designed process it's often a little bit kind of scrappy but startups are a little bit scrappy and so i think yeah for me i think one of the challenges happens though is in the first year of a product realistically the founders are the product managers yep however as they start moving away from only building the product and start looking at building the business they have less and less and less time available so their first product hire is usually more of a product administrator which is a frustrating because it's more of a short order chef. Yeah, yeah. They still want to decide what gets built, but they don't have the time to deliver it and put the processes in place. So they kind of need a, a product ops person to take that up and put all the operationalizing of the process in place. But the longer that goes on, the more divorced the founders are from the product process. Also, the more divorced they are from customers because they're dealing with 101 other different things. And so over time tension tends to build between the founders and the early product people and obviously the early product people want to own the process more they want to be not just being told what to build but they want to be going out and deciding themselves this is what we've been taught at school at university yeah this is what we've been taught by listening to podcasts like yours and going to conferences and so this tension emerges and helping product founders and design leaders and company founders navigate that challenging time I think is one of the biggest things I found myself doing over the last kind of year or two helping founders and this goes back to your other point about me stepping away from clear left helping founders realize what they don't know yeah and realize when they need to bring experts in and realize when they need to step away and the frustrating thing for those founders is what always happens is if they step away everything slows down (laughs) because yes Because they're the owner, they can make decisions off the bat and they don't have to kind of validate those decisions. They don't have to make sure those things are perfect because they're the owners. Yeah. If it crashes and burns, on their head be it.
0: It's their money, right?
1: Yeah. The reason a lot of us have to go off and do a lot of this research is because if we screw up, we might be out of a job. Whereas if it's their money, if it's their, their business, they've got a little bit more responsibility, but also a bit more freedom to make those decisions. And so anyway... You have this tussle and the founders have to learn how to let go. Yep. They have to learn how to give more responsibility over to people. They have to realize that by handing that responsibility over, decisions will take a lot longer. And
0: But there'll be better decisions there.
1: Yeah, well, possibly. Hopefully. Possibly, but possibly not. I mean,
0: Probably, maybe.
1: This is the weird thing. I mean, there's a lot of conversation at the moment around kind of in the industry around product sense. Yep, It's all very well having a process. But a lot of the times people lean on a process because they don't have a sense of what a good product is. Yep. And weirdly, a lot of founders have an innate sense of what a good product is, but they have absolutely no process. Yeah. And so you get this process group of people and this intuitive group of people clashing. And because the intuitive group of people also, at the end of the day, can hire and fire people, that clash can often become very, very challenging. And actually, I think the reality is you need people in the middle, particularly in early stage. Later stage, very process driven. Yeah. Early stage, you know, you need product leaders that have got that sense or feeling of product quality. And you need founders that are willing to give a little bit more rope to allow the design and product team to go through the motions of understanding the context. Because actually I think this is the key. Like, I mean, this is a classic phrase. I don't know if people talk about this in more general product terms, but designers. There was a a famous architect, I think in their twenties or thirties, when I get the, the details wrong, called Kudserin. And he said something along the lines of, in order to design a chair, you need to understand the room. In order to design the room, you need to understand the building. In order to understand the design the building, you need to understand the city block. And so designers and product people naturally want to zoom out to understand the context before they can zoom back in. And that can be that that can lead to much, much better solutions. Yeah. But for a founder, that is running out of money in six months' time. They just want that chair to be designed. They don't want you to spend ages zooming out and looking at the room. They're just like, no, deliver the chair. You deliver the chair, we'll figure out where the room is and we'll stick it in the right room. But that is incredibly frustrating to people that want to do good design work.
0: No, absolutely. And I think that there is a certain opinion that I've heard from certain people in the past around the fact that everything does slow down just because people are never happy with the amount of research that they've done and they've just got to keep going and they've got to keep going and they've got to keep going and they get past the 5 wires to the 10 wires to the 15 wires, just because they want to check and have complete certainty about everything. Although, I guess, based on what you said earlier, there's this argument that maybe if they were given a little bit more rope to hang themselves with, that they'd maybe make decisions sooner because they might not get fired for making a decision rather than feeling that they have to have it certain because they believe that if they make one bad decision, they're out on the ear.
1: And and there's a sweet spot. You know, I think most companies need to put a little bit more thought and do a little bit more research than they currently do. But I also think most designers need to realize that they can probably deliver 80% of the solution. Yep. Which is a really, really high level of the solution by doing a little bit less. And if both parties can come together, then you find this sort of optimal sweet spot. The challenge is that in that situation, There were a group of people that have the power and a group of people that don't have the power. So power dynamics come into play and it's these power dynamics that get incredibly frustrating.
0: Absolutely. But we've talked a little bit about the struggles that designers and product managers can have. I'm going to bucket this in the same bucket there because I think we we should be friends, right? But if I assume that we're both part of the same broad conceptual team. And it's not just designers that have this top table problem. There's a big movement around, like, well, so do product managers, like getting even a VP of product at some sometimes can feel like a bit of a struggle. Now, let's assume for a second that this is because of some lack of executive presence, whatever that is, or leadership acumen or whatever you want to call it. And it's very much a supply side problem. And that we've got product managers and designers out there that. maybe missing that special source that gets them to that top table. Like they can't just become better individual contributors. They've got to do something to get to that top table. What do they need to concentrate on, in your opinion, to maybe represent at that top level and get past being that really good individual contributor?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's, that's sort of quite a complicated question. And I think a lot of it depends on the size and scale and maturity of the organization. I think in the early stages, when you're hiring designers and product people, they need to be very delivery focused. They need to be very pragmatic. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to, from the founder's point of view, we have 12 months worth of runway to prove that this product works. And once we run out of money, we'll either go back to our our investors and, and be able to demonstrate enough value that we can get the next 12 months or the next 18 months. Yeah. And so most founders are basically jumping from feast to famine. And so they need pragmatic Designers and, and product people that can help them get to that next gate, I think the challenge with a lot of designers and product people in general is they actually want to build the best product possible on the market, yep and that is what the company will end up doing, hopefully, but it will end up doing it over five or six years and, and using millions and millions of pounds. I think a lot of product people could quite happily spend twelve or eighteen months <laughs> building the perfect product, but at the end of it, you've got a lovely product and no customers. Yeah, And it's very difficult to convince people who are investing that that's going to be a, a sound investment if there's no evidence that people actually want to use a thing and are using the thing. So you have to balance your desire to deliver perfection with a pragmatism around delivering customers and growth. And so finding product people and designers that can meet that balance. And what I tend to find is I tend to find that designers tend to massively skew towards, I want to build the, the perfect product out of the box. And to do that, I need to do a ton of research, a ton of design work, a bunch of different variations. And that's understandable because that's how we're taught. And you know, ultimately that is the right way to do it if you are living in a world of abundance. Yeah. Unfortunately, startups tend not to be living in a world of abundance. The challenge with product managers is product managers tend to be a little bit more realist when it comes to what's needed for the business. They tend to be in more of those conversations, they tend to often be the go-between between the, the business and the owners of the company and the design and digital teams. And so some of the time they're just passing messages back and forth. Yeah. Often they are blamed by both sides for their role. Their bosses are blaming them for not delivering fast enough, quick enough, delivering the results. The designers and the, and the engineers are, are, are blaming them for not giving them enough time to do the perfect work. And product managers are often stuck in the middle, which is why I regularly say that I think, in some regards, product management is the hardest job in our industry because you've got all of the responsibility but none of the power. Yeah, no CEOs of product here, no? No, absolutely. It's, it's really tough. And particularly if your CEO is the head of product,
2: <laughs>
1: de facto, you've been told that you have the responsibility, but you don't really have the responsibility. Yeah. And you're told you've got freedom and you've got all these lovely OKRs, but really you're being told what to do in a bit of a feature factory. So it's a tough job. I just came back from Stockholm and I gave a talk at from Business to Buttons. And the talk was basically trying to encourage designers and product people, but mostly designers in general, to be slightly more pragmatic, to take a little bit more time to understand the business goals of the company, which sounds like it should be kind of 101 stuff. But you'll be <laughs> amazed at how infrequently designers really understand. And I don't just mean like have a conversation and a couple of KPIs down, but really understand the stress and pressure, and goals that their stakeholders are dealing with. They're really good at understanding that from the customer's perspective or the user's perspective, but I think using our empathy and our research skills to apply that to our business partners and our stakeholders. And if as a designer, you can use your amazing design skills, your amazing problem-solving skills to deliver what the business and what your stakeholders want, the idea is that your business – people and stakeholders will appreciate you for delivering that. They will trust you more. They will give you more authority where you can then build the case for doing the things that you want to do. So it's really, you know, a lot of people talk about kind of like, you know, it's a case of show, don't tell.
2: Yeah.
1: I think a lot of us designers, our natural instinct is to put up a shiny deck with references to Jared Spall saying like, <laughs> you, you idiots, this is how you meant to do it. But all that does is antagonize people. Yeah. What you actually need to do is you actually need to figure out a way that you can show your business that for every dollar you give design, we give you five back. Yeah. And if you can prove that every dollar you give design, you get five back, you're going to be showered in dollars very, very quickly because (laughs) you're showing that you're an engine for growth. Yeah. And once you've been given that growth, then you can start on the side building a case for research, building a case for good customer discovery, building a case for quality for working down your design and UX debt. All of those good things, which you know are important. But again, things like debt, like we talk about UX debt, we talk about engineering debt. I think a lot of teams want to and expect to be working constantly at zero debt. Their goal often <laughs> is to is to optimize for zero debt. But the whole concept of debt is it's stuff that we borrow now to pay down later. Yeah, We borrow it now and pay down it later because we don't have the time and the runway to pay it off immediately. So we're growing the business, we're growing customers, we're getting money, then we're using that money in six months or nine months time to pay down some of the debt that we spent you know, a year before. We just need to realize that.
0: Yeah, so to paraphrase or sum up, and it's something that I've definitely been thinking about and tweeting about from time to time, it's about dialing back the idealism, not just reading books at people and saying this is the way that things should be or blog posts or whatnot. Realizing that you work for a business because you do, and that business has its own goals and its own problems, and being as pragmatic as possible to make sure that whilst you do have these ideals and you do want to get where you're going and you want to get there the best way possible, that you may have to take on a little bit of tech debt, a little bit of product debt, a little bit of design debt, even a little bit of organizational debt just to get stuff done so that you've actually got a platform to move on to the future and hopefully do all of those things that you wanted to do once you've actually. Built that bedrock to go from,
1: and I I think also another way of looking at it is I think a lot of designers and product people think they're playing a series of games of chess, (laughs) and in chess, the way you win is to be better than the opponent. Yep. And as long as you're better than the opponent, you can win every single time. So I think a lot of designers go into the into the, the process thinking we're just playing three or four long games of chess, and after we've beaten all of the opponents, and we'll win. Yep. And the reality is actually it's more like a series of hands of poker. And you're playing dozens and dozens and dozens of hands in a game. And you're playing dozens of games in a tournament. And actually, you're not trying to win every hand. What you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize your losses of bad hands. You're trying to maximize the gains of good hands. And the reality is actually, you can have a run of losses of 10 or 20 hands. Yep. But if you play the right hand right, you can, you can clean up. And so I think most businesses are playing poker. Most product teams are playing chess. And it's this understanding that actually the game you're playing is poker. And it doesn't matter if this particular game wins because you've got another hand and another hand and another hand. And you're not optimizing for reducing loss or reducing sort of um, waste. You're trying to maximize the upside. And I think that's the key. Founders are trying to maximize the upside, product teams are often trying to minimize the financial downside. The difficulty there is they're also trying to minimize the downside on users. And we do have to remember that any game of poker, particularly if we're playing with users, data, emotion, attention, whatever, has a negative effect on users. So I also understand why designers particularly don't want to play so many lost pans of poker because it has an effect on customers. But it's balancing the two that is important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what's one piece of advice you would give to maybe a struggling designer in a company that doesn't quite see their worth. Maybe they are working in a feature factory. Maybe they are just being seen as pixel pushers or people that do coloring in, as you've memorably put it before. They want to be seen as true strategic partners for the rest of business, value creators, that $5 for the $1 or £5 for the £1, depending on your exchange rate. What can they do, like one first step, of which I'm sure there could be many, but like one piece of advice to help that designer get on the way to be that true strategic partner?
1: Again, I don't know if, if there's an easy one piece of advice. I mean, recognize it as a marathon, not a sprint. Yep. Recognize that the work you do is not going to be perfect and get comfortable with imperfection, but knowing when to push and when not to push. Building up your profile by delivering great work and delivering great business results. Build up your relationship with your business partner so they see you as a, a facilitator, not a, a handbrake. And sadly, a lot of product teams see the design team as a handbrake because they're constantly moaning about we can't do this, we shouldn't do that. And I see a lot of product teams and particularly marketing teams going outside externally to other designers and freelancers because the design team has built itself into a bit of a handbrake. So be a facilitator, not a impeder of progress. But also realize actually like the reality is that you know some most restaurants are not Michelin style restaurants. Most restaurants <laughs> are some kind of short order chef. You can't join McDonald's And then suddenly wake up one day and trying to change McDonald's to be a Michelin star boutique restaurant. So have a level of realism about the companies you're you're going into. Have a level of realism about how much you can change. Realize actually like, you know, and this is going to sound a bit sad, but like you're probably never going to be doing the level of strategy that you want to be able to do or think you can do, because that's just not where the commercial market is. But there are options. If you really feel strongly about the design process, as I do, the best way to implement your vision is not to go and work for another company where you're having to deal with their vision it's to start your own bloody company
0: yeah there you go so
1: you know i want i want to see more designers put their money where their mouth is and say hey look i'm frustrated be- being told how to do it i'm going to go and start my business and i'm going to show all of those other people that if you do it this way it works really well so start your own company or at the very least move into a company where maybe you know go and work in an agency where you're iterating through lots of projects really faster and learning really fast. So like ending up being one, you know, if you're going to join a big tech company and you're one of a hundred designers, you're going to be iterating a tiny part of a bigger product. The other thing to do is like go and become a founding designer. Go and be the first designer through the door. Go and be that designer that helps educate the founders, that sets the culture, that sets the tempo, that builds a product from zero to one. And also what happens is like, if you're lucky and you pick the right company, I'm not only picking the right company, but if you use your design skills to turn that company into something valuable, you might find yourself owning 1% or 2% of a billion dollar business. And if you own 1% or 2% of a billion dollar business and that business IPOs, you have freedom to do whatever the hell you want. And if you want to set up your idealized next product, if you want to build an amazing team of designers, if you want to be a freelancer, if you want to just sit on an island somewhere making clay pots or painting, whatever <laughs> you want to do, you can do that. So I think being a, and even if that doesn't happen, if you go and start an, if you go and join a startup as a founding designer, and that company doubles in size every six months, very very quickly, you're going to be leading a team of two, then a team of four, then a team of eight, then a team of sixteen. Yeah. And if it all goes well, you are going to have such an accelerated career that it will open up your options. Because ultimately, we are in a seller's market at the moment. Yeah. There is so much demand for designers designers can increasingly pick and choose where they work and who they work for. If you find yourself in a situation which isn't serving your needs, look elsewhere. That wasn't true 10 years ago. It might not be true in 10 years time, but at the moment, demand is high. People value design. If your current company isn't
0: working for you, go to another company that is or start your own. Absolutely excellent advice. But speaking of what you could do next, what's next for you? Are you planning to do more conference talks? Maybe start up another firm of your own, or maybe even write the next version of your CSS book. Oh, I mean, like the CSS book was was great, but I'm
1: well past CSS. <laughs> that that <laughs> I, you
0: know, back to tables now, mate. Right?
1: <laughs> I would love to do a book at some stage in the future. Another book. I love speaking at conferences. I'm totally up for speaking at more conferences. I um, you know, we've had a challenging couple of years at conference world. Yep. I've done a few online events, but I love being in person. I think we're going to see a little bit of a spattering of, of conferences pop up over the next six months. But my hope is or my expectation is 2023 and 2024 will be where a, a lot of the old conferences will come out of mothballs and a lot of new exciting conferences will come up. And so, yeah, if any of your listeners want a a hopefully eloquent, opinionated <laughs> speaker to come and, come and speak at their conference later this year or, or early next year, I'd love to do that. And in terms of other things, you know, I'm I'm enjoying coaching design leaders i'm enjoying using the knowledge that i've gained over the last 20 years of my career to help them solve the problems that they're tackling in bigger companies and i'm really enjoying helping founders in the vc world build better businesses so i think for the next couple of years i'm going to be doing what i'm doing now but i wouldn't be surprised at some stage i get itchy feet i want to build a team and obviously <laughs> having spent a couple of years in vc i'll be in a really great place to do something else so there might be something next on the horizon. But I'm really enjoying what I'm doing at the moment.
0: Oh, well, good for you and watch this space. And where can people find you after this if they want to chat about design or startups or entrepreneurship or see if you can still remember how to vertically send to a div? <laughs>
1: well, um, look, my blog or my website, andybud.com, is, is probably the best place to come if you want to read some articles, if you want to kind of understand about my coaching and, and mentoring or advisory work. I'm mostly very, very prevalent on Twitter. So I'm just Andy, at Andy Budd on Twitter. And I'm going to be on Twitter until you know Elon Musk takes it over <laughs> and crashes the car with a bunch of sort of right wing, Nazi white supremacists. So who knows when that will be? It could be next week. It could be next year. It could be never. But I really enjoy Twitter as a platform. It has its challenges, but I think removing moderation and allowing hate speech that skirts the edges of what's legally acceptable is not going to make it a, a nice place for reasoned discourse. <sighs> so yeah, I, I'm yep. on Twitter until you know, until it goes so downhill that it's an unpleasant place to be.
0: Yeah, no, I think there are many problems that you could fix at Twitter if you had the chance. And I don't think those are the ones that need to be fixed first. So we'll completely with you on that one. Well, I'll make sure to link that all in anyway and put that in the show notes. And hopefully you get a few people heading in your direction, maybe even revive that bud mania. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad we managed to set this up and talk about some important and complicated issues around design and leadership and entrepreneurship and all of those other great things. Obviously, you and I will stay in touch on Twitter. But uh, as for now, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to one night in product.com. Check out some of my other fantastic guests. Sign up to The Baby Mist or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.